0: Good morning, church. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm I'm one of the pastors, and it's it's uh man, it's a thrill to be able to well, one, serve with brothers that I love so much like that. Um, but also, the greatest privilege is to be able to open the Bible with you guys this morning. We're going through the book of Genesis, and man, it was so perfect that the kids were up here. I know some of you maybe got in a little bit too late. We had this little stage filled with children singing, worshiping. In fact, we didn't even get to do our normal worship because they filled this place with their worship. It's just adorable. Um, and I was standing there thinking how fitting that was because this last week as I started working through Genesis 22, and it's this really familiar story, you guys. It's about Abraham and Isaac and climbing the mountain. It might be one of the most retold, well-known stories in the whole Bible. Um, so I'm studying it through and, and praying it through. And one night we, we had our little granddaughter, Colette, over because her little brother was sick. And so we we took Colette in for a while to let her parents kind of focus on her little brother. And uh, Colette is the most imaginative three-year-old I think I've ever met. Well, her dad is James that's up here a lot. So you can imagine all that creativity kind of getting dumped now into Colette. So Colette just has stories going on all the time in her head. So I'm getting her bath ready, okay? And I got the bubbles going and bubbles are starting to form. And we're starting to toss in the different little dolls and toys she's gonna play with in the tub. And as I'm doing that, she starts creating the story is about to emerge in that tub, right? She's already halfway into a story before she ever puts her toe into the water. And I just love that, right? She's, She's got this imagination. So honestly, that moment, I felt like God was kind of stirring me, like, why don't I enter into this story, this Genesis 22 story, with the same level of childlike faith that Colette would enter into this story? that just active imagination, that curiosity, this desire to know more. So here's the one thing about Colette. Sometimes I'll be telling a story to her. We've got this one ongoing story called Forest Friends. And so as I'm telling her a story, all of a sudden, she gets ahead of me in the story. Like, I'm the one writing the story, like, in real time, right? But all of a sudden, she'll be like, Papa, you forgot about the fox. Jet the fox. And I'm like, because she's seen him enter the scene, right? Like, How rude of you, Papa. Talk about Jed. He's right there, right? So how do we take that level of childlike faith, that like leaning in kind of faith to this magical, incredible story? And then I thought how appropriate that is because you guys, for so many generations, all the stories of the Bible were told orally, right? After Genesis 22, it would be another like 3,500 years before the printing press, Would be invented. So, in all those years, the way that people learned these stories is somebody would learn it, memorize it, and sitting around a campfire, they would tell the story. And, you know, oral tradition people would learn how to listen attentively and they would lean in, and sometimes they'd even ask questions along the way because they were hanging on every word and they wanted to get it just right because then the next generation would have to hear it from their lips, right? So, I went back out to my porch where I'd been sitting and I started writing out kind of channeling Coco, my little granddaughter. How would she approach this text? What questions would she ask? So uh, if if you'll give me a little grace, this is so unlike the way that I normally bring the message to you. I just wrote this thing out, and I just kept going. And so sometimes I'm talking to Abraham. Sometimes I'm talking to God. Uh, it's not great. Don't hand this in to the Iowa Writers Workshop or something. <laughs> like. We're among friends here, okay? So little insecure about what I'm about to do, but if you'll enter in with me, I I think God's got something for us out of this well-told story. All right, here we go. So I opened my Bible to continue the story of Abraham from the book of Genesis chapter 22, and the opening words feel very familiar. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Oh, man, this is beautiful. God is calling out to faithful Abraham just as he has done before. But out of nowhere, after long years of silence, God's voice just breaks into Abraham's life. The crazy thing is that Abraham doesn't even seem startled or afraid. It's like he's been waiting for God to speak to him again. And He's he's ready. He's ready to listen. God is in no rush here. (laughs) And Abraham seems totally at ease with the pace. It was years ago that God promised Abraham that he would make him into a nation, give him a home, give him a land, a great family. But then God let Abraham wait. It was 25 years before the promised son Isaac was born. 25 years. But then Isaac... Abraham has adored his son from the moment he held him in his arms. Who would have imagined that an old man could have such a gift, a son? But Isaac is no longer a child in Genesis 22. No, he's he's grown into a young man. I mean, Isaac's likely the same age as our salt students, right? Where have all the years gone? Abraham has watched expectantly as Isaac grew into a strong, faithful man of God. And now, at last, the day is drawing near when Isaac will be able to take a wife. And the long-awaited promises will just begin to unfold, right? A- Abraham's been patient, feeling no need to rush things. God God has this. And honestly, he's loving these days with his son. But wait, there's, there's something different going on this time the author actually tells me something that isn't even audible to Abraham. This first verse tells me that God is testing Abraham. Wait, what does that mean? So I take a deeper dive here, and I discover that this ancient Hebrew word doesn't carry the idea of tempting. No, no, no. That word is used when an enemy is trying to you know, take someone down, to expose their weakness, exploit it. That's the kind of thing we've seen before, right? The the way the serpent came at Adam and Eve earlier in the garden. Now this idea of testing, this is different. This word has the idea of proving the quality of something, to, to show that something is genuine, show that it's pure. So I guess God is about to show Abraham and us how true, how real, how genuine Abraham's faith is. He isn't out to trip Abraham up. He's about to prove to Abraham that his faith in God is well placed. God can be trusted. Abraham has been right to reply, here I am, with excitement, not dread. But man, what what is God doing to show him that? What is this test? So I keep reading. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Wait, what? Lord, I want to cry out. You can't mean that. What are you asking? This doesn't sound like you at all. No, you're the one who is Abraham's shield. That's what you called yourself. You're his protector. And you've been doing that. You stepped in, you protected Abraham when a combined force of kingdoms even threatened his family. You're the one who shielded him from the destruction of Sodom. You even stepped in when Abraham got himself into a mess with King Abimelech. God, you've been the one preserving Abraham all these years, and he has followed you. Are you showing your hands here? Is this really the kind of God you are? Toying with this man that you've been so incredibly kind to? This is Abraham's son you're talking about. Remember all those stars you pointed Abraham to? What about your promises? Isaac is the only son he has, the one you promised him, the son he loves. Then The next line of our story kind of settles me back into my chair. (laughs) Abraham has not even been told exactly where he's going. Nevertheless, so Abraham got up early the next morning and saddled his donkey. (laughs) Abraham is actually going with you, God. He doesn't even pepper you with the questions that are racing through my mind. (laughs) Instead, Abraham got up early the next morning, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering, set out to go to the place God had told him about. Oh, man, the normal way that Abraham just carries on is just stunning. He, he gets up early, the way he always does. He, he walks to the barn to feed the donkey, saddle him up. By now, Isaac's undoubtedly also up, takes his place at his father's side, watching and learning as he has done since his earliest memory. Together, they gather up the supplies. Abraham wanders over the woodpile and splits just enough to pack up. Then he calls out to a couple of his farmhands, And then he calls out to Isaac, who's been carrying on with the other chores of the day. The son he loves, man, he loves this young man. He smiles as he sees Isaac immediately drop what he's doing and just run to his father's side. And off they go. So in my imagination, I begin to call out to Abraham, Abraham, you don't have to do this. But Abraham isn't listening to my doubting voice. He heard God loud and clear, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. What is Abraham hearing that I'm not hearing here? What is moving his feet to the barn and his his hands to the wood pile? What is guiding him to pack the donkey and even sharpen his knife? What was his soul listening to that compels him to follow God? And then I read the next lines. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. Wait, the third day? Abraham, you had to keep putting one foot in front of the other for three days, and you're still not there? Man, this journey had to be excruciating. What was going through Abraham's mind? I I don't know if I could bear it. But look at what Abraham said. The boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. Abraham, I think you really believe this. I don't think you're whipping up a quick alibi for the hired hands. You're heading off to worship with your son, and even though you brought the wood and wetted your knife, you believe with all your heart that you will both be returning to the campsite. Are you denying reality, Abraham? Or do you know something I don't know? Because this seems absolutely crazy to me. So now it's just the two of them. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son, Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Father and son walking the rest of the path, just the two of them. Walking on in silence, the only sound is their sandaled feet on the rocky mountain that they are climbing, with the young man following dutifully with the load of wood on his shoulders. Look, am I the only one wanting to scream, turn back, you, you don't have to do this, this is madness, but they don't hear me, and they're following a different voice, and they keep going. And then finally, the silence is broken, and it is the inquisitive voice of Isaac, and his words just send a chill up my spine. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, father, son, father, son. The repetition of these words is just leaping off the page at me now. You can almost hear the love and these simple words of Isaac, the trust, the unquestioned bond between them. My father, And Abraham replied, Here I am, my son. Responsive, caring. As Abraham turned to look into his son's eyes, did he have to choke back tears of both love and fear as he said, Here I am, my son. And the valid question, the one he had to have been asking since leaving the little campsite at the bottom of the hill, Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? No hesitation, no faltering. His father looked into his son's trusting eyes and said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. They keep walking. They keep following I begin to read again, and this next part is, is stunning. Like, you almost want to turn away. You, you can't believe that this is the way this story is going to end. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. You have to stop for a moment to picture this. Isaac is a strong, loyal young man. Did he help his dad build the altar? I mean, his father's an old man. Isaac is used to doing all the heavy lifting for him. Did did Isaac arrange the wood for him? Did he hoist himself onto the altar knowing his father wouldn't be able to lift him? Did he hold his hands together to make it easier for Abraham to tie the knots? Oh, man, is this faith? Is this insanity? What is happening here? And finally, a voice pierces through the scene. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. No sense of panic in the voice, repeating his name, not out of urgency or desperation, out of love, assurance. And Abraham's faithful, instinctive response, he replied, "Here I am." The very words that he offered to God when this journey began, the very words he had just spoken to Isaac, "Here I am, I'm still here. I'm still following." And it, as if God is saying in that moment, "Yes, Abraham." I see you and Abraham here I am then he said do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horn so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son Oh, man, I, I wish I'd been there to see this moment. Abraham must have grabbed Isaac and held him for such a long time as he helped him off the altar. And I wonder if he whispered into his son's ear, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I mean, they wasted no time, right? They, they offered the lamb together as they wept and worshipped. Did they sing? Did, did they cry out in joy as they gave that sacred place a name? And Abraham named that place Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And those final words still ring through the ages, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Because as I reflect, I realize this story, it's certainly about our father in the faith, Abraham. It's certainly about the faith of our our, our hero now, Isaac. But this story is far and away, far and away more about the Lord who has provided. Abraham rightly named that now sacred mountain, Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord will provide. I mean, you can still go there and visit it to this day. Go to that very site. It will look a little different, though, these days. You see, like many ancient sites, the mountain had more stories to tell, and it would acquire more names through the ages. Remember what Abraham taught us. God is in no hurry. Many generations, over a thousand years after Abraham and Isaac climbed this mountain, a city would emerge there. The city would be named Jerusalem. And as God directed, a temple would be built on the very spot that Abraham built his altar. That great temple would see generations of lambs sacrificed to provide a temporary covering, a a substitute for the sins of the people. Oh, but the story of the mountain doesn't end there. Many generations later, another thousand years of history, and we would watch God lead his son, his only son, the son that he loves up this very mountain the wood of sacrifice would be placed on Jesus' shoulders. But this time the father would say to Jesus, Son, you are the lamb. And Jesus would look with loving trust into his father's eyes and allow his hands to be bound. Jesus would willingly provide himself as the substitute The lamb given for Isaac, for Abraham, for you, for me, and and every soul that would come to the mountain. I got to thinking how powerful and chanting this story is. In fact, I actually can remember the very first time I ever heard this story told to me. It was in this little church near the University of Northern Iowa, and I wandered in there, and I heard Pastor David Graham Tell this story from Genesis 22. And I still remember when he said, now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews to unlock some of the mystery of what we had just seen in Genesis 22. Because in Hebrews 11, here's what we read. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. But he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. See, Abraham believed God so completely, so assuredly, that he knew God would make good on his promise about Isaac. And even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead right in front of his eyes that day, God would make good on his promise. Wait for us here, boys. My son and I are going to go worship and then we'll come back. 2,000 years later, Jesus also knew something about God that no one else standing near the cross believed. The reason that Jesus could make that journey up the mountain was because Jesus knew that his death would not be the end of a life. It would be the gateway to eternal life, that a resurrection would follow. And not just his own resurrection, he would bring the hope of life after death for everyone who would follow and believe. Look, I I don't know about you, but I was no Isaac growing up. (laughs) I was no ideal obedient child. But actually, when we keep going through Genesis, we're going to discover that Isaac was no sinless saint either. See, all of us feel the weight of our unworthiness. All of us carry the guilt of a life that we're not very proud of. And that's the marvel of Jesus' walk up the mountain. He did it because we were unworthy. He laid down his life because we couldn't fix ourselves. He took on our condemnation because our sins had bound us and claimed us and weighed heavy on us. And just before he died, he looked up into his father's eyes and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even when we didn't know what we were doing or have any idea what Jesus was doing, Jesus kept the oath of that mountain. God provided the lamb. And then rose again just as he promised he would. And we can live because God provided the lamb. And I got to thinking, if that's the kind of God that created all of this, right? One that would lead his own son up that mountain in order to save you and me? Man, what other response could we give than to say, Lord, I believe and I will follow you for the rest of my life and then see you one day on the other side? In fact, that's what we're told, actually. In Romans chapter 8, those very words, what then are we to say about all these things? Look, if God is for us, who's against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Guys, God didn't test Abraham in this way just for Abraham's sake. And the story wasn't recorded just for history's sake. It was recorded to give us the chance to respond. Because at this moment, right, we we, we got a couple of choices. We could just file this story away like legend and lore, put, put it on the shelf with King Arthur and Hercules and other heroic deeds of the past, right? Just just legend, just lore. Just be fascinated by it and move on. Grab another story. Or we might even think, oh, is this just somebody to inspire me? Some Some, you know... Great man from the past, like George Washington, right? Or even some saintly dude, like St. Augustine or something. Is that, is that what it's for? Just to give us a good example. We, we should be more like that. No, you guys, if, if that's where we go with this, what a massive, massive miss. God isn't allowing us to encounter the story just to kind of stir affections. Give us a new hero. It's to draw you and me to the mountain and ask the simple question, do you believe? Do you follow? I think for some, even even now, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I met a guy after the last service, very first time and I said, "Why are you here?" He goes, "I think God brought me here." I'm like, wow, I think that's probably true. What are you gonna do with that, right? I, I'm just saying, like, I, I don't know how, how you wandered in here today. Is it possible that there's no accidents and God brought you here today to tell you this story about his son, Jesus? And if that's true, and if that's you, the only possible response that you should have is, man, there's no accidents. I believe. God of the universe. It's like I'm the only one in the room right now. I believe. I believe. But you know what? I think for all of us, there's a moment for us to lean into this story. Because the thing is, Abraham had this encounter with God years after he first started following God, right? And sometimes we start thinking, well, surely I've kind of passed the test at some point. Now, now, now I'm just kind of in, right, God? Well, all of a sudden, at different ages and different stages along the way, we just heard Eric up here talking about when you think everything's plastic, you've got all this security in the world, all of a sudden the rug kind of gets tugged out from under you, Right? Maybe you're facing a test. Maybe you're facing a trial. They keep coming. Apparently, they keep coming at 60. (laughs) I don't know how many more years of these trials are going to come, but I'm telling you now my story is they just kind of keep coming every so often. And the question is, do you believe there's a God who is provided? Do you believe that there's a God in whom there are no accidents? Do you believe that he's not tempting you, toying with you, but actually testing you to actually show you that your faith is actually more real, more anchored, more rooted than even you might believe that it is? Not to make you trip up, but to show you that your faith is real and valid and well-placed because God is trustworthy. I was actually thinking about that And these verses from the book of James came to mind where he says, this is to you and me. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Okay, like when Eric got that phone call from his buddy, right? Man, God's testing me. Is that the way you kind of enter into these trials? I, I mean, that's not my first instinct. I wish it was, you know, hopefully eventually I get there. But, but that's what James says. You should consider a great joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter these various trials because here's what you know to be true. Here's what you know to be true, brothers and sisters. The testing of your faith actually produces endurance. It doesn't produce failure. When you're following God, the testing of your faith Brings out endurance, and let endurance have its full effect. Don't squash it. Don't try to squirm out from it. Let it have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Guys, will you follow God when he calls? Will you let him take you to the mountain? He's asking you to believe that he has already provided. Jesus has completed it. Now will you believe? Will you follow? And will your answer be, here I am. Man, that's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. And that's what I believe this story is going to lead us to. So will you stand with me? I would love for us to pray this out into our souls. And then we're going to fill this place with our worship. But join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for bringing uh, even children into my life, like Coco, who remind me that there's something special about childlike faith. We want to have first love for you, Lord. We we want to re-encounter you. And maybe even stories that we've heard countless times teach us again what it is, Lord, to believe, to follow. And Jesus, even as we come into this room and we see the Christmas trees and the kids are singing away in a manger, Jesus, I feel like you're asking me all over again do, do I believe? King of the universe, you were born into this world, into poverty. To to be rejected? to, To take the cross on your own shoulders to die for me? Jesus, I believe. I believe. And I believe that that cross actually wasn't the end of the story, that a resurrection followed and that you busted away through death so that I can live forevermore, that I'll see you on the other side I believe. Fill this place with belief, Lord. Fill this place with confident faith and trust. And let it be well placed in the God who provides. Not in our own courage, our own ability. No, no, no. The God who has done it all, the God who provides. God, we're coming now to your mountain. We're ascending one more time up that mountain to lift our eyes. And to say, Lord, we believe. Help us to sing to you and worship you. To to have the kind of gladness that was in the heart of Abraham and Isaac as they recognized the God who will provide is meeting us here. We offer you this worship now in Christ's name.